Bravo's man. He's the Davos man. Davos man. Fuel the private jets for Switzerland. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Centrish Kickers podcast. I'm your basic podcast host coming to you from the closet where we try to tear down the wall of ideology one brick at a time while sitting atop it in the middle. Um, yeah, I'm going to keep coming at you with that cheesy shit. So yeah, I had to sing the Davos man <laughs> intro there. It's been a while since I've talked to you guys, so definitely want to try to get to the reading list I've gone through, um, which is uh, Davos man is obviously one of them by Peter S. Goodwin, Goodman, excuse me. I'm going to try to make some connections from that book to some of the others I've read in the past that I think kind of signify our major problems and some of the scholarship like from people like Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz, who did the Indigenous People's History of the United States, and the, uh, the other book I just read from her, which was um, uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants, a, <laughs> a History of Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a history of erasure and exclusion. So those two books combined, I mean, I think, anyways, let's, uh, since it's been a while, we'll get to those here in a little bit, but I, I guess I should start with some news. <laughs> uh, not exactly breaking news here because I'm not a very timely podcast, but so I guess well, there's war in Europe, uh, Russia and Ukraine. I admit being completely wrong about this. I did not think it would come down to open warfare. Um, you know, there was talks about even at breaking points, they were sort of joking about Russia just using the tip <laughs> to get like the Donbass reason, region, which is this eastern region, and sort of take that back. Um, but then Putin comes out with this crazy speech about expanding the Russian borders and going back to the old Soviet or even pre-Soviet empire, uh, back, you know, the glory days of Russia. Um, just sort of real... I mean, I don't see how what he how he thought that would translate in the West. Obviously, he probably didn't really care, seeing as how he then invaded. But it's a very Eastern and empirical, imperial mindset. Uh, not empirical, not the scientific way. Imperial, um, as in wars of conquest, imperial. Um, and he said it, and then he pretty much just went out and did it. And I honestly just, I never thought it would happen. I didn't think... Uh, that he would want to bring the world to the brink of World War Three. I didn't think we'd want to heighten, you know, like Cuban Missile Level Crisis, heighten awareness and fear and anxiety now. And essentially, um, a lot of the what I agree with, I've heard, is that, you know, with NATO and all the um, Western European allies and even, you know, the UN coming down on him, <coughs> I just didn't think he would risk that because um, he's essentially woken people who've been pacifists before and now suddenly there's people who claim to be pacifists or dovish or now complete complete war hawks um because they you know i think trump sort of fueled some of that too i mean people equate trump and putin as essentially the same character from a different nation you know um and obviously people blame putin a lot for trump being elected and russian interference and blah 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 i don't you know if you look into any of that you know how involved they were which isn't as much as some people would like you to believe but either way, you know, they did play their part and it garnered a lot of hate uh, from people. But now they see the opportunities like giving, you know, Democrats and supposedly leftist dovish people who are peaceniks are now, you know, they want to oust this guy because they can do it violently when it's somebody else. They can't assassinate 
But even idiots like Lindsey Graham, he just, that tweet came out, I think, yesterday or late last night or this morning when he's talking about hoping that some someone assassinates Putin. Um, you know, how convenient that would be, I guess, to oust somebody. But you don't think that someone worse could take his place? Um, you don't think that the, the idea of a threat within might make Putin more dangerous in the near term? I don't know. So, yeah, like I said, I got this completely wrong. I honestly really didn't think Putin would do anything like this. Um, I'm not going to really give you, I'm not on the ground. I'm not in Ukraine. I'm not going to go much deeper than that, I suppose, other than <clears throat> I've, I've enjoyed or not enjoyed. I like the fact that America is sort of staying out of it. Um, who knows if the sanctions are actually going to do any good. I mean, I don't want to cause, wouldn't want to cause any harm to, uh, actual Russian people, you know, people who are out there peace protesting and things like that, trying to end the war on their side. Uh, obviously you got to encourage those things and try to support them some way. I don't even think that's possible, but uh, it'd be nice to be able to support them in some way and, and actually hurt the ruling class. Um, that should be the target of the sanctions. And I think some of that stuff's coming down with the whole swift banking thing it was a controversy for like a day and a half before it came down. So, so yeah, uh, we'll see if it goes any further than sanctions. It sounds like the Russians are upping their military. <clears throat> tactics to be a little more harsh um, you know there's already talk about war crimes so it's just an ugly situation and it's crazy i mean i you know to my discredit i suppose i i've sort of forgotten about the nuclear aspect to the world too you know you, you, why would you want you don't want to dwell on things like that but then suddenly when you could come to open warfare with another nuclear power you really start thinking about those dynamics and you're like god damn you have to avoid that at any cost and the idea that uh, people are just, you know, wanting to get more involved and do something is like, I, I understand the instinct as far as like when you see injustice or see a sovereign nation, um, you, you know, you think that's sort of the just thing to do is to go help the underdog a little bit. But, um, but yeah, you kind of have to recalibrate those thoughts when there's literally nukes could be pointed at you. Um, so you know, there's been a lot of hubbub about how how responsible is America or NATO for Russian aggression here. As I said, that speech from Putin sort of laid it out on the line that, um, you know, I'm getting a lot of this information from breaking points. I don't know, remember a specific episode, but um, I do, I will, anyways, I, so you don't know if you had told Ukraine that they couldn't join NATO, would Russia still have attacked? Um, I think given... Putin's speech, I think that it wouldn't have mattered. I think certainly that would have been given him even less, you know, less concern or less thought, I suppose I should say. He would have thought less about it if Ukraine would have tried to join NATO. I think then he's got to go in either way. Because um, the, the, the argument is that NATO expansion has been antagonizing Russia. You know, you can even go all the way back and went to, was it 94, 97? Must have been 97 uh, when we when we bombed Kosovo and Slobodan Milosevic. Um, and ousted him for ethnic cleansing and things like that. Um, cause there was a, you know, a genocide going on in Kosovo. Um, ethnic, I mean, that's, that's what I remember from the time. I, I'll be honest. I haven't really, I was in high school smoking a lot of pot back in the day. So I wasn't, I wasn't deep into politics or researching that, but I, I remember that being the propaganda Americans were fed. And then I just remember seeing the explode. I mean, we fucked them up. Um, America's military might was unquestioned at that time. Um, still fairly unquestioned, but there's some larger players on the field now. And certainly, um, enemies who are using outdated tech, you know, like the, the Iraqis and both desert storms and also, you know, um, 
why am I spacing on Kosovo is not a country. I think it's a city. Why am I totally spacing on the name of that country? Anyways, I'll look it up later. But we bombed Kosovo. You can look that up. Slobodan Milosevic um, and his ethnic cleansing campaign took him out. And, you know, so you can look at that as some, uh, 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 I don't know if that was a UN mission either. I don't, can't imagine it was a NATO mission, but America was certainly involved because I know Clinton ordered the bombing. But, I mean, that's right in, <clears throat> I know it's right in, um, let me just look it up while I'm talking to you, but that's right in the Russians' back door. And so you can look at that as them as like, well, NATO is constantly ex expanding. And then you got them just freewheeling and dealing with their own military operations, including America. And that's that's what pains me the most about this whole thing. Really, when I see Russia go in, you go, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Why would they do this with poor Ukrainians? I can't help but feel I'm looking in the mirror at American foreign policy right now. Um, and Russia is playing the Americans. And I know that sounds real shitty. And I try to think of myself as a patriot, but I'm I'm more of a patriot to our constitution and the principles I think we're supposed to have as a country than just anything we do is wrong. I think, or isn't wrong. I think that's the wrong type of patriotism to be just completely jingoistic and blind to your own failings. And I think America's military foreign policy, including the CIA and South America and everything else is very worthy of criticism. Um, I don't think we've been a very principled country and had the highest values, um, you know, it's like trying to spread democracy through military force is pretty, uh, pretty horrendous in my eyes and pretty dubious way of, of, of spreading freedom, supposedly. Uh, I'm not, and it's not to say there isn't, there isn't, uh, dictatorships and horrible individuals ruling countries, but then again, we've put some of them, those people in power because they were simply friendly to us economically and, uh, and supposedly in the name of fighting communism, which I think is, was a mass hysteria, frankly. I mean, yes, I, I, the communist governments weren't known for their humanity either, but at the same time, you know, you can't just go around committing atrocities around the world and think you're somehow, anyways, I'm going to go get, pull down that rabbit hole, but uh, Russia, with their actions right now, just, they kind of smack of what we're, you know, and they even used, threw it in our faces a little bit saying they're denazifying Ukraine. I mean, that's hundred percent something we would say is like, Oh, we got to get those weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Meanwhile, there's no fucking weapons of mass destruction. Uh, I think it's been proven again and again and again. So it's just painful to see it. Um, you know, I can't imagine if we had gone through um, some of the amount of sanctions from a, on a planetary level, essentially. Um, oh, strategic position in the Balkan Peninsula by Montenegro. I guess it was a country. Why did I think it was a city? Kosovo. I said, where is Kosovo? Europe. <laughs> yeah, it's nestled right in there by Serbia, Bulgaria. It's right in the middle, landlocked there, north of Greece. I don't even know if it still exists, frankly. It probably got folded into something, but that's where Kosovo was or is still. Sorry to the if there's any Kosovoian people, Kosovoans listening. Um, sorry, my I'm an American and my geography is shit. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just disturbing. You know, I think this should be a wake up call to all Americans um, that when we do shit like this, it should be it should be responded to in kind, because I think what Russian Russia is doing right now is a crime. And I think what we're doing right now in a crime is a crime. So I don't think I don't honestly believe that Putin is somehow even whatever NATO aggression, quote unquote, or whatever American aggression is involved here justifies his actions and going to open warfare. And essentially, I don't see his end game now. There's no end game for him but to win. And by win, I mean, like, absolutely win. And essentially, 
overthrow the Ukrainian government, install a puppet government. You know, this is all sounding familiar once again, and that's why it just smacks of American hypocrisy here to be so outraged about this because we've done this in the past, let's be honest with ourselves, and we've not only done it through open warfare in Iraq and attempted it in Afghanistan, let's see how that turned out with the governments we installed there. Even though Iraq is, they're holding tough right now, but Afghanistan was a complete failure, but we've done it through CIA coups and all this other operation bullshit. Anyways, um, that's, I think that's his only goal now. I mean, you can't admit defeat. Uh, unless you somehow get to the bargaining table and go, okay, we're going to call it quits. You can have this part of Ukraine, but we're taking this part. Um, you know, and the, uh, Ukraine essentially gets divvied up, which, which is, like I said, I think I mentioned it in the last episode. I know Ukraine's been going through an eight-year conflict with Russian sympathizers before this, you know, this new conflict in their country. And, and, and so and here's where we get to not NATO's aggression or anything else, but certainly what Jennifer Briney calls our side, which is essentially the, is it the IMF? I'm going to link her two episodes about Ukraine in there. And really this comes down to the globalist money-making scheme of capitalism. Um, which I know it's like, I sound pretty anti-capitalist sometimes. I just don't like capitalism on this level. When capitalists are globalist capitalists, you know, I, I think of capitalism as the mom and pop store down the street that you want to support because they make good products. They don't cook the muffins or they don't, what like they used to, or the cell-phoned auto parts store that's not a franchise or anything else, but the guy does good work and charges re decent prices, whatever. I think that is capitalism. Um, when you're literally talking about people who are ruling the world, running the world, and this is going to tie into the Davos man opening here, but and that these people are the movers and shakers behind the scenes in government. These are your, you know, guys controlling lobbyists and think tanks and groups and shit like that, that, that form ideologies that uh, permeate through the ruling class. Uh, this is the donor class. This is the professional managerial class and, and above and beyond the people. So anyways, uh, the bankers, the people who have no transparency or completely opaque financial system. And, you know, it's international. It's the EU. It's America, North America, I should say. Um, you know, and, and Jennifer Briney in her episodes, I think it's episode 244, she goes into this, or maybe it's 245. I can't remember. Or two four. I'm going to post two episodes. It's in one of them. You should listen to them both if you want a, a deeper understanding of what's going on with Ukraine and Russia and America and NATO's involvement, if any, however you want to view it. You know, she's one source. So obviously, if you feel like you need to, um, find a different source and counter some of her arguments. I, I recommend you do, but she does such a great job over at congressional dish. Uh, that's the name of her podcast that, um, you should give them a listen cause they're informed. You're going to get a lot more information than I'm going to give you. I'm just going to sort of snipe from hers and give you some of that information and then provide the links below. Um, so because, so about eight years ago when, when Ukrainian civil war broke out, we, America took a very direct involvement in reshaping Ukrainian government. Um, literally people like John McCain and Victoria Noonan went over there and they helped oust the foreign president and essentially choose the new leader. And when that happened, obviously that was a view towards Ukraine and become more, more sympathetic to either NATO or the EU, um, more like more than likely just the EU since they're on Russia's borders. Um, I've heard it disputed that there's been a, some sort of Minsk agreement where NATO had agreed to never move, expand closer to Russia. Um, so whether Ukraine joining NATO was really on the table or not is up to debate. I'm not, and I haven't read the Minsk agreements, but, um, <clears throat> but, um, but either way, it's, it's certainly what all of that would happen about a decade ago under Obama and Biden was there and Noonan and like I said, John McCain, and they 
I'm not sure how the money, how that all worked out. Like I said, I, I've listened to Jennifer Brownie's <laughs> the Congressional Dish episodes, and I'm, you know, and I'm like I said, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not just going to repeat what she said um, um, verbatim and say and, and call it the gospel truth. You have to go figure that out on your own. But um, but we had a large hand in shaping and putting uh, President Zelensky into power, and and you know, so obviously Russia. Th seeing that you're essentially putting a Western puppet government right on their border didn't take too kindly to that. And obviously, obviously, you know, whether it's the rebels, the Russian rebels in that country who were fighting back against this, I, I think it's pretty obvious that they were probably funded by Putin and the, and the Russian oligarchs. You know, um, uh, I have a hard time believing that they wouldn't be now that there's, especially now that there's open war. So they were probably trying to disrupt this from the get go because yeah, why would you, I mean, you just, even if it's not NATO or even the EU necessarily encroaching uh, right up against you, it it uh, it's just it kind of throws everything in their face that they're kind of feeling more and more pressured. the The Russian economy is about the size of Florida, uh, as far as per what is that? all the economic terms. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but their GDP or whatever gross domestic product is about the size of Florida. So they have a they they are a failing and shrinking superpower with an incredible armed forces um and i got now i don't know how upheld those armed forces have been but they exist obviously there's over like nearly 200,000 of them in ukraine and fighting a war so um anyway those are the kind of things that led up to russia doing this i'm not going to pretend to be inside putin's head uh I feel like just because they're a shrinking and failing empire, that some uh, this is what happens. Um, power bases get whittled down. Eventually, they lash out. Um, I don't think this is unique. I think it's just what happens um, with empires like that. And eventually, there is you need the resources. And apparently, Ukraine is very resource rich. Um, and Russia needs all that they can get. Um, and it's just a shame that there can't be, you know, that peace can't win out. Obviously, or that or that a, a, a country as powerful as Russia can't have more um, level-headed leadership. I mean, shit, I, obviously I could say the same thing about our own country, so don't, don't confuse me here. But at the same time, it's just like this is pretty horrific because being this close to nuclear war all of a sudden is not something I, I suspected I'd see again in my lifetime. And so, and that's why if I did mention Ukraine in one of the last episodes, I believe I did, I sort of had passed it off as like, oh yeah, things are bubbling up there, but I really didn't think this would happen. And here it is happening. It's pretty crazy. Uh, the footage is horrific. Um, as far as what you're seeing, it's just terrifying. I can't imagine being anywhere that America's done. But it's the thing is what you've seen, I've seen hillsides blow up. I've seen a lot of, a lot of Ukrainian or Ukrainian, Afghanistan um, footage and things like that of our troops over there. It was a lot different. Um, you just didn't see people like it looked like a downtown metropolis and like bombs getting dropped on it. It's crazy to see. I mean, you see the footage from World War Two. Uh, you see, I've seen um, lots of Vietnam footage where we're fucking carpet bombing the jungle and who knows God how many people we vaporized there and in Cambodia just bombing jungle paths. Um, but once again, seeing trees blow up and fire, I was like, oh, okay, that's something, and it's horrific and it's terrifying. But seeing people literally driving through an intersection and the building behind them blowing up to the point where it's like, I don't know if those people are alive. And that shockwave's got to be tremendous. Uh, and if they're alive, they're they're certainly injured from it. Um, it's just terrifying. Um, so the heart goes out to the people in Ukraine, and they just hope that somehow they can get to the negotiating table and 
and make this work uh, and find some peace. I don't, you know, and then even then it's like, I don't see how there's going to be some, any lasting peace really, or, or just, it's, this is going to take decades to repair at this point because there's going to be so much bad blood between the two. Um, but countries have done it before. I'm not saying Iraq and Iran are, um, super peaceful with each other on good terms, but they fought a seven year war, I think. Um, before we even went in there. I think that's how Saddam came to power. I don't know, but the Iran-Iraq war was pretty bloody and lasted a long time. And, you know, they're still in Kahoot or they still live next to each other. Um, so it's, it's, it's possible, obviously. And, well, shit, all of Europe throughout all time, the most war, warred on continent, at least in modern times. So it's not impossible. It's just, it's disturbing and crazy. Um, what else is in the news real quick? I'll try to get to Ob Obama's, Obiden's speech. <laughs> Uh, President Biden's old. Um, I would listen to the breaking points. They had a pregame show for the State of the Union, uh, which was fun. They had uh, Marshall. I can't I can never remember his last name, but Marshall, he's on the um, the uh, podcast that was Sager. God damn it. And then also they had Kyle Kalinske on <clears throat> from Crystal Kyle and Friends and also from Secular Talk on YouTube. Um. The podcast I'm thinking of with Sauger and Marshall is called The Realignment. So that's a good podcast to check out. They interview a lot of interesting guests. Anyways, it was fun listening to them. They had obviously have good takes, voices I trust. Um, as far as Biden goes, he was tired, man. Um, it's a lot of stumbling, a lot of bumbling, uh, a, lot, a laundry list of shit he claims he has been doing right you know he stood with ukraine he came out strong with on the ukraine issue saying that the nato uh, alliance is strong and that if russia keeps being belligerent that and expands their scope of of belligerence that uh, nato will respond if any grain of sand is encroached upon by russian troops that's a pretty strong declaration um and then it was COVID in the economy and somehow, you know, claiming that he won on a disease that, you know, it's going to go away anyways. So, um, <clears throat> I kind of felt that ring super hollow. I'm sure it landed strong with some folks who really want to see him as some sort of savior because the masks are coming off now. Even our own state here is, I think the mask mandate ends in a couple days, seven, six or seven days. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> uh, what else? Sorry for my coughing. Better take a sip of beer. So what else? Yeah, Biden then, he went on essentially a, long, a laundry list of progressive things that he's going to try to do. Essentially, it was pass all my bills or pass everything they want you to pass and everyone will be happier and better. Oh, the one thing I was um, uh, encouraged to hear was... Uh, us opening up that microprocessor plant, Intel is apparently dumping a lot of money into it. I'm sure because they're going to reap the rewards, just like just like um, all of our COVID saviors with um, the Merck pill and Pfizer and and Moderna, how they made so much money off their. As soon as you know, there's money, a government dollar to be made. It's like, oh sure, we'll donate six billion because we're going to get back twenty. Um, <clears throat> but they're going to try to build this huge factory to make microprocessors, which is you know a good thing. Uh, as far as American manufacturing is like, it's pretty basic populist language of buy American. I mean, how long have you heard that? I've been hearing that since I could remember politics being brought up. I mean, it's something that you hear from the eighties on, um, um, certainly in the nineties, I remember hearing it about buy American and all this, and which is, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, 
I think international trade's great. I don't want to damage everything with tariffs. I think Trump was pretty clumsy with some of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> there's still, it's not like he made all these promises like steel manufacturing, all this stuff, and aluminum factories are going to come back during the Trump administration, and it's still pretty weak here in America, as far as I know. Um, but if we could actually follow through on this microprocessor thing, I mean, how much of technology do we, do we use? I mean, we all use it all the time, pretty much every day. Um, so it's, it's critical and it, we can't have all that manufacturing base, you know, offshore when it can be taken from us and say, we need to build it right here. He also talked about energy independence, but unfortunately most of that was using fossil fuels still, which in the short term, I don't see you're going to get around it. You're going to need to use fossil fuels. So fine, fair enough. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I'm on the nuclear boat. Um, I think, uh, Oh, shoot, I should provide that link. I, I, think, I think I will. Sagar and Jetty did one of his on From Breaking Points. He did a, a monologue about nuclear power, and it's a pretty convincing argument. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna, I definitely am going to add that in the notes, but um, essentially like saying that there's a place, I think, in New Mexico or somewhere in America where we have a nuclear storage facility where we could store the world's, the whole planet's nuclear. Now, granted, that's if maybe nuclear doesn't expand. But he said, as it, maybe it's as it currently stands, we could house all the nuclear waste there for uh, for a thousand years of nuclear waste for the world, the planet, not just America's nuclear waste, the planet's nuclear waste for a thousand years. We could, we could have it there. And that's just in one location. Now, granted, I, I still don't like that solution. The idea that there's all this nuclear waste, but I mean, I don't know <laughs> if it's buried in some mountain somewhere. Is that the worst thing in the world? No, but I'd like there to be a better solution, a cleaner solution somehow. I mean, if popular science has brought up nuclear batteries that you could somehow make a battery out of nuclear waste, but I don't know how efficient or safe or even plausible that is. I mean, it's popular science. It's not the most hardcore science, a lot of daydreaming science really, but I don't, if that's a real thing, that would be awesome. I mean, I think the human ingenuity and creativity, we could figure something else out other than just shoving it in a hole and forgetting about it. But at the same time, nuclear is a cleaner fucking option. I know it's scarier to some degree, but he also claimed that there's like chemicals that chemical plants that had fires and, and done damage and poisoned groundwater that killed thousands of people more than any other nuclear disaster. And we still use those chemicals. Do we not? Of course we do. And I don't remember the name of the, I think it was a chemical that a factory that something happened to it in India and killed thousands of people. But like I said, there's been all sorts of other industrial accidents that kill people all the time, including health ramifications from shit coming out of smokestacks and stuff. But people are worried about nuclear because we saw the HBO Chernobyl special, which was awesome. But, but, and it was scary, but at the same time, it's like, if you're going to sit there and tell me where you can provide clean energy and we can get closer to being, you know, more carbon neutral and power our, our, uh, not only our cars, but our factories and, you know, agriculture and things like that to the, to the point where it's closer to carbon neutral because it's based on nuclear, then what are we waiting for? Why are we not doing this? Um, so it's pretty mind blowing that you can really talk about the future and not think about that. Uh, nuclear is not something from the sixties and seventies and the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima. It's we're in the nuclear age still. And it's time we start re remembering that uh, and even improve upon the technology that we've already improved and make these things safe, efficient, small, whatever, secure, whatever we need to do. I'm just, I'm totally on the nuclear bandwagon because, and I think if people actually take climate change seriously, how can you not be? What are you, what are you going to do? It can't all be windmills and solar panels. We just don't have the infrastructure for that. And those, those sources are obviously, what is the word for them? They, anyways, they're not, they're not as consistent. They're not as bountiful as, 
I mean, I know there's always wind and there's always some form of sunshine, but sometimes they just don't provide the energy that we need and use. So you want to keep expanding solar and wind. Awesome. I'm with you on that, but they need to be grounded in nuclear is and in limited fossil fuels if that's what you need to do but i mean fossil fuels can we can see their way out and frankly if we do more regenerative far refarming we can store more carbon in the ground anyways and get it out of the damn air anyways um that's kind of the news i wasn't all that impressed with biden's state of the state of the union it's pretty pretty same old same old uh the breaking points crew had marion williamson on after I, I like her a lot as far as a human being. I would have voted for her for president if she would have been the nomination against Biden and or Trump. I knew that wasn't going to happen, but she's a more intriguing and empathetic individual in a position of power than I've ever seen. Um, but, you know, she tried to apologize for Biden's verbal gaffes. Um, and I'm just like, and I, I'm sorry, Marianne, that totally falls flat. Um, and the guys on the, the panel even pointed it out. It was like Biden from 10 years ago when he was VP, that guy could be president. I wouldn't mind that person being president. 100%. I mean, you can be an older person to be president. And he, But he got over his, his, he had had, what, 50 years in Congress or something like stupid shit like that. Nearly 50 years, at least 40 plus. And he didn't struggle with a stutter that whole time. Okay. He was over it. He'd figured it out. And that's fine. That's awesome to be able to overcome your disability if you even want to call it that he overcame it but now what we're seeing is not like oh he forgot how to overcome his stutter he's in cognitive decline maybe not to the point that people are saying he's got alzheimer's or something but he's just a really old man can we just give him that it's like he's old just what i mean what him and pelosi and trump i mean these fucking people just ride out to pasture please let someone else take over uh, all this legacy nonsense or whatever it is, ego or power. Or I just, I don't understand what's keeping these people going. Just quit. Just walk away. Pelosi's going to go off for uh, election again. I mean, the guy, lady's almost in her eighties. How much money and influence and power do you need all the time? Uh, anyways, it, that part of it really grosses me out. Um, I, it's like, I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm sorry, Marianne. It's nice that you're sympathetic towards what he's dealt with in his life, but he's just old. Okay, I mean, it's it's not a bad thing to be able to call that out. And frankly, like I said, 10 year old, 10 years ago, Joe Biden, president material. Would I want him to be president? Probably not. But at the same time, a hell of a lot, heads and shoulders above where he's at now. I mean, he walks out with those squinty eyes now and he's just like, dude, are, well, I don't know. It's not inspiring. He's not there. To, he doesn't rise to meet the moment, in my opinion. I just think feel like we need something like that now because this country is all over the goddamn map and without strong leadership, I just don't think we, I don't know. I think we're, I just feel like he's a sellout. He's a, he's a, he's a cutout for someone that's really pulling the strings back to the Davos man. So let's go full circle. Uh, the people pulling the strings. I mean, so there's, as a quote, uh, I think I've even said it before. I'm going to say it again. It's from, I saw it and it's, it's didn't originate with Dr. Chris Ryan, but he posted on his Instagram and it's, they got us fighting the culture war to keep us from fighting the class war. Davos man. So Davos man by Peter S. Goodman. Essentially, he's a reporter. I think he's in the New York Times and his book is about him going to Davos, Switzerland, where all these billionaires meet and they have their meetings and they do all their glad handing and networking and stuff like that. And he, his book is essentially who these people are. And he covers the guy from BlackRock. He covers Jeff Bezos uh, he covers, I should know this cause I didn't read the book all that long ago, but you get the, you get the picture. Oh, it's, 
he goes over lots of stuff. He talks, talks about the H&M guy, the people from, um, even the, the guy who, uh, Ikea and, um, God, I can't think of some of them. Anyways, yeah, apparently I need to absorb my reading, but, or take better notes because I'm spacing on it right now. But essentially all the people you, well, and fucking Musk and everyone else, it's the people who go to Davos for Christ's sake with all the glitz and glamour and celebrity that's, uh, goes involved, is involved with it. He, and essentially just outlines their shady ass deals and the fact that these people are, um, they're the real movers and shakers in the world. And so I'm tying it to that quote, um, from, from Dr. Chris Ryan, um, just in the fact that these culture wars that we're all dealt with, I, I can, my analogy I keep coming back to is that we're, and it's not a very creative one, I'll give you that, but we're all on the chessboard. Now, granted, there's pawns on the chessboard. There's even all the way up to kings and queens on the chessboards, knights, bishops, rooks, uh, whatever. Um, and you got your, God forbid, you have different colors of chess pieces as well, so you're pitted against each other. And different tiers of power, obviously. Bishops are stronger than pawns, or and queens are stronger than uh, anything else, and kings are versatile in power. Anyways, so each each has their different sphere of influence and power on the board. That's everybody in. That's everybody in your life. Most of us are pawns. I'm a pawn. Most of most of the people I know are pawns. I know of people who might be up the scale there somewhere who might be a knight or a bishop, or something along those lines. That's fine. Uh, I don't think I know any kings or queens. I think those are the true, probably celebrities on that level, perhaps. Um, but the Davos man, Davos person, they're they're not even on the board. They're outside of the board. They're the ones playing the board, and and I just don't. <laughs> and that's really the best analogy I can give. These people are outside of the game. They're outside of our influence. We can't touch them. We can't even get close to them. They, if you turn and you start looking off the board at them, they will arrange other pieces against you. And they, those other pieces, they might not even know, uh, because these people literally have control of industry, multinational, multinational, <laughs> multinational industry, uh, media. Uh, they have their fingers in governments, governments plural. Um, they are buying up all the assets, all the land, all the housing. That's BlackRock. I'm thinking of specifically in that one. Uh, it's just when you hear about just what they can get away with and how there's literally no white collar crime, there's literally a, and a completely opaque and, you know, uh, financial system. Uh, when you read works by Taibi, you read Davos, man, you start making all these connections is like, these people are just running interference. there's no one. How do you keep these people accountable? How would you hold them accountable? And the, the answer is you really can't outside of a, really what it would be a mass uprising. Now, I know the immediate answer is, well, see capitalism. It's like, I don't even think this is capitalism. This is like, this is royalty. This is people playing God on the, on, on above the chessboard. You know, we're on the board. I'm never getting off this board. These people, you know, for whatever reason, they've been able to finagle the system to the point where they're above, they've rised above. So, and, and, uh, one, one point that, um, Peter Goodman comes to quite often is the stakeholder capitalism, which, uh, woke Inc by Vivek Ramaswamy. I think that's how you say his last name. Apologies. If it was not, but look it up. Woke Inc. He's all about the stakeholder capitalism and that book and this book are a perfect pairing. Um, another, uh, and as far as the stakeholder capitalism, these people think that they can, they're the ones going to, that are going to improve the planet. But a lot of it's just bullshit and talk. 
you know, and a lot of it's culture war nonsense that they, you know, they're going to donate this little pittance here and this, that little pittance there and start some program in a government that, you know, and then, and then none of it really fixes anything or putting it, you know, essentially diversifying quote unquote, diversifying workplaces and, and, and boards and things like that is somehow uh, fixing the planet or, or really challenging power in any real way is not reality, but it's, it sure looks good and feels good. And it's that culture war that keeps us from coming after them because, oh, they, they appointed a black CFO or something. So now we don't need to worry about BlackRock literally buying up all the houses in, in certain areas or California billionaire. Anyway, so it's the, the distraction away from actual, uh, challenges of power is infuriating. And that's a lot of what Davos Man is about and a lot of what Wonk Inc. is about by Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, another book that I found interesting that you could compare with Davos Man is Neil Ferguson's uh, the, the Square and the Tower. Um, and he took this historical look at uh, essentially organizations throughout history and how organizations have influenced the course of history and then come to power. And so, I mean, Obviously, it sort of fits perfectly with the Avos Man. Um, it's been a while since I've read this book, but that was the takeaway I had: is that it's these unknown connections and organizations. I mean, he doesn't go in as far as like skull and bones and things like that, but um, but uh, that these you know these organizations that. Uh, so it's networking, really. I mean, right? I mean, that's what Davos is. You get these people who are billionaires. They don't work at the same company, but they're on that same level. They're on that same tier of influence. And then you get them glad-handing. How can you tell me that um, that these people aren't affecting global economics uh, when, you know, when they have this much power and this much pull? Um, and then again, when these people, uh, you know, when they make a decision... You know, you could have hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs or becoming homeless or going without food or dealing with this or that because they can crunch the numbers and this gets shut down over here, which affects this over there, which, which ramps up production here, which makes them more money. But then this goes, I mean, all the cascading effects, they don't really care about because they know how to pad their bottom line. And that's really all they're doing. Um, and they can, if they can distract you from that by um, by fighting the culture war. Is that they fight up from up there? It almost seems like it almost seems hilarious. It's like you could change the culture right now if you just if you actually used your power for something good. Um, uh, another part, another book, a more much more controversial author would be the Coming Apart book by Charles Murray, um, and that's really just you know there's a lot of this has been in the media quite a bit lately that I've seen that there's just a, a separate culture for the elite ruling class, and and because of that, uh, people who are not in that ruling elite culture who are not of the Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden's who are not of the, you know, Mitch, even Mitch McConnell's and Donald Trump's who are just common folk like you and me, we become dehumanized because we're just, we're not of the ascendant. We are not of the elite or the elect. We are not of that culture. And so we can be looked past very easily. Um, or, you know, like I said, when these Titans of industry make a move and suddenly there's, you know, a hundred thousand people out of work and, you know, across two cities or something like that. Uh, they somehow give the, the rugged individualist argument, which I know gets, it's always those things that can be twisted both ways, but they give that argument. It's like, well, they may, must've made a mistake or something went wrong there. Or that's, or maybe they just are cold blooded about it. That's just the, the cost of industry. It's like, they lost their jobs of these people over here are gaining jobs. It's like, and by those people over there, you probably mean exploited workers who aren't making nearly as much. And once again, your bottom line is padded, but, um, 
Yeah, it's pretty inhuman. And these dogs, because they're so disconnected. And so, well, how can you go, well, how can these people uh, have, you know, look at us this way? How can they, how can they treat other human beings like this? Or wasn't there some sort of, where's their compassion for us instead of their bottom line? It's, well, because they don't look at you like one of them. That's, I really think that's it. And that's probably a human sickness. Like, I don't think kings, you go all the way back to how many, how many kings of God from the pharaohs to the kings of Europe, they all felt like they were put there, you know, by a deity. They all felt that they were, were, no one just worked real hard and became king. You always have this air of divine right, um, uh, that, that you are somehow closer to the divine than the common person. And I don't think that's changed. I think that's probably a human condition somewhere along the line. And I've, I've made the argument in the past uh, with some friends that I see people like Musk and these other individuals. And I think almost that there's, there's something, they're not neurotypical. Uh, they're neuro neural, like, like neural link or neural net or neural, neural pathways in our brain. I think they're, they're on the spectrum somewhere or, that even that spectrum can be socially constructed. Um, and like I said, I think that maybe their, their ascendant success and, and, and uh, hoarding of wealth and, and riches and influence uh, maybe corrupts that brain, maybe makes them neural atypical. I don't have a fancy word for it, but that's the best way I can describe it in a very secular scientific sense. I don't think they're, they have the divine right of kings, obviously, because I don't think that shit's real. But at the same time, something happens to them. Something disconnects them. There's very few down-to-earth, compassionate, you know, billionaires who actually are constantly trying to do good all the time. Like, oh, I've, I've got all this wealth. Now i got to find a way to give it to the people. And you can say, well, yeah, they do. They create jobs. Yeah, it's like, but they could just as easily pull that job out from underneath your feet. Uh, they don't give a shit. Um, I don't think they can give a shit. That's that's kind of the point I'm getting at. I, I just don't think they can. I think they're actually incapable of really caring, even though they would claim that they could because they'd probably, probably be insulted if they heard me say this. I would like to assume that they would, but I'm just like, well, look at the end result. You keep getting richer and richer and richer. The world keeps getting more divided and impoverished. And what's happening? You're not... I mean, anyways, it just seems like if you're really going to use that power and influence, you'd be using it in a much more tangible and direct way um, instead of doing what you're doing. But instead, they're constantly scheming and looking for new ways to <clears throat> enrich themselves because I think they're in competition with themselves, really. And that's what another way of them disconnecting from Main Street is they are, you know, private islands and private jets. They don't have to be around us. They are completely insulated. And this is information I'm getting from media. This is, you know, these ideas are bandied about in Davos, man. Uh, coming apart is essentially all about this. The way that our culture is split uh, mainly by zip code and monetary, you know, the ritzier neighborhoods, they don't have to intermingle with the main street neighborhoods, you know, and it becomes more cloistered away. Uh, and then again, it only, that cycle therefore gets hit. Oops, sorry about that. That cycle, therefore, gets uh, exacerbated by the book like Neil Ferguson, where it's you got there are uh, organizations of these people like Davos, and I should be able to have a damn, another damn example from Ferguson's book. It was a really good book. It was interesting. It, it took me a while to sort of make the connection he was making, but um, and obviously still have a hard time explaining it. But essentially, it's just there's these cabals of very influential and rich people who, who. Um, because they have this influence or, like I said, at another level, they are able to collaborate and therefore change the course of history based on, um, what is the byline to his book? Anyways, um, I'm not going to look it up, but, um, 
it's mentioned well and it's worth the read it's an interesting way of looking at history because a lot of history is done by the great man of history um and this is just the great organizations of history in a, in a sense unless i'm totally butchering this uh, i guess i'll never know unless i reread the book uh, but speaking of great man of history let's get on to the final portion of this podcast um, it's be, and it's the Roxanne Dunbar Gay. I think she wrote another Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. So Roxanne Gay wrote the bad feminist. And I mentioned her in a recent episode, I think as well, but this author's name is Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And as much as I say, Roxanne Dunbar Gay, right? I keep saying, you're saying is really driving me nuts. Anyways, I think she wrote a trifecta of these books. Like we're trying to reframe American history. I probably won't read another one. Uh, I read the Indigenous People's History of the United States and sort of gave a summary of that one. This one was uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants, and it was a lot of overlap with the Indigenous People's History. Um, like I said, if you want to read, like, a, essentially, I think the, the thrust of these books is to totally disrupt the, the 1950s pink-tinted pink glasses uh, view of American history, which I'm not opposed to doing, but you, she doesn't supplant it with anything. Um, she goes, she glosses over what some people have written entire books about, which is, you know, from the native American genocide to, um, to, uh, our, our war with Mexico and annexing territories of Mexico, annex, uh, our, uh, immigration policies against uh chinese and asian americans or would be chinese and asian americans uh that lasted will shoot up until well, way longer than i thought now i can't remember the date i'm not never good with dates but um so yeah all these all these things that you know and she even curiously goes into um you know how europeans viewed irish irish folk and stuff like that and how even uh, italians and other people weren't considered white so essentially saying that this land was, you know, colonized and taken over by specific white people, quote unquote, and not even all Europeans were considered white. Uh, they had to work to get that status. Um, you know, obviously she touches on the Native Americans again. I mean, she really goes, I mean, like I said, glosses over so many different topics, so much history and gives, you know, it's more scholarship here than, uh, than in some books, but she's not offering a deep insight or deep nuance to much of it. It's a lot of just deconstruction of American history and, and adding, adding the dark pieces that we should be considering more for sure. Um, and being, having a more honest history. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not entirely opposed. I just don't know where she wants to go from here. Like you're essentially, you're throwing, you're throwing a spike into the spinning spoked wheel and you're trying to knock it down. Uh, this narrative, this story, this, this momentum of America, but then I don't understand what you think you're going to supplant it with. And, and that's really what frustrates me. I don't think you should turn the heat down on the melting pot. And I feel like that's what she's kind of doing. Like, I really feel like most of this, this race-based identity politics in this age that we're living in right now is a lot of that. They're trying to turn the heat off in the pot and things are going to stop melting. Uh, or they're going to outright claim, well, it's not a melting pot. It's like, well, no, it is. Uh, interracial marriage is high. Um, and, 
and it's going to continue to be that because that's just the culture and nation we are as long as there's more and more desegregation and, and immigrants coming in, which I want there to be um, kind of conflicting with her idea that we're not a nation of immigrants. It's because, you know, her reasoning behind that is sound in the book. It's because we're trying to uh, hold people back from being citizens, from being full on citizens. Obviously, she goes, she goes through a, a large portion of um, um, the Jim Crow South and slavery, of course. Um so, and you know, like I said, she's not wrong about these things. That's why it's, it's hard to argue with the leftist who has the right scholarship about these things. But in, in a weird reality, in a weird way, I feel like she's, she's actually kind of spinning a conspiracy theory in a way. Um, and she's using these, these truths, but then she over ascribes them to the, to what America actually is. And, and the, and the way I can say that is because no one knows what America actually is. But she's gonna. She's trying to tell you. Other people in the past have tried to tell me for sure. For you know, or a lot of people, it's George Washington and the cherry tree, or something as as grammar school level as that. And that's sad. I I I understand that uh, it would be frustrating if you're a historian like she is to hear these people who don't know the actual any fucking history about it. They don't even know that they maybe they can't. Well, the Congress Congressional Congress probably happened in Washington D.C. Don't you think? <laughs> No, no, DC didn't exist then. But anyways, uh, <laughs> um, you know, just that sort of level of, of historical ignorance, which is, you know, I don't know. Some people, we need, we don't need everybody to know everything about history. But at the same time, like I said, if you're going to craft a new narrative for our nation, it should be one that unites. And I don't think the, like I said, the common identity politics narrative these days is uniting at all. Uh, it's just be angry. It's just tear it down. And that's really what these books seem like to me is like they're, they're activist books. Like here's the history of activism and why the, the act that activist push was justified. And if it stood just on that, I'd be like, okay, so how do we continue those fights? And actually, but instead it's a lot of, like I said, it's always white colonialism and white settlerism and that everyone, everything you've been told is a lie. And that essentially a drop your narrative and, and take ours. And I guess I should get back to trying to <laughs> uphold that she's using conspiracy, conspiracy theorist thinking in a way that she's just the, the broader narrative she's creating is too broad. It's like um, she's trying to answer too many questions with one thing. Um, and I, I think that's my biggest issue with a lot of what she is saying is that it's like it. Because it, it's not only is it too large as along too many populations, it's over, what, 200 plus years in just America, but even before that with European settled colonialism. So it's the thrust of what colonialism is, is clearly imperial expansion. I think she's, she lays the ground where I don't think anyone would really argue that. But, and maybe, maybe I'm ignorant here. Well, I am ignorant, but maybe I'm not understanding is like what, how much did the average everyday Joe 150, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, even how much did they really know about what was going on? Once again, think about that chessboard analogy I gave you earlier. Do they really know the thoughts of the King? Do they really know the, the, the movers and shakers of industry back then? What, what the actual goal was or they were, they just all these devilish pawns who wanted nothing more than to kill anything that wasn't white. Um, which is, you know, that's an, that is a possibility, but it's not possible for everyone. And once again, that's where I have an issue with her grander narrative or any grander narrative, really. You're in, you're, you can't explain it all 
through one lens. And I think that's what you're getting down to. And I, I think I even said this in one of the last podcasts, I think I'm on, when I was talking about her Indigenous People's History book, were there assholes who headed west after um, uh, Manifest Destiny who just looking to kill Indians? Yes, just like there were uh, men and or women who joined the American army going to kill some ragheads after after the towers fell on, on 9-11. Don't tell me you don't think that's a real thing. I think there was people who joined up solemnly because they wanted to defend America. They thought there was a legit threat out there. They didn't want another 9-11 to happen. Let's go find these international criminals. I think there was people who did that. But I also think there's people who joined up for completely racist and bigoted reasons and wanted to go kill someone uh, so they could, you know, bloody blooded themselves, essentially. Um, but do I also think that there's probably poor white folk who set out across the prairie hoping to, to hoping to escape uh, um, economic oppression uh, who maybe had who maybe at the time weren't considered purely white in the historical context. Maybe they were Irish. Maybe they were Italian. Maybe they were something else. I have no idea. Or maybe they had some religious affiliation that was frowned upon where they lived and they needed to escape and, and search for real freedom. And unfortunately they happened upon some native Americans and maybe more than likely were probably killed by those native Americans or killed them in return out of some sense of adventure and just trying to escape. I just, it's the story is so much more complicated than Europe was doing this. I mean, think about that. Europe was doing this. Yes, you could say Europe was doing that, but does that boil all the way down to the atom, to the individual level? And I get it. That's a very conservative take, but I just can't, I can't, I can't accept the grander theory uh, or the grander story that essentially becomes a conspiracy when you play with the larger blocks. And that's what it is. It's thinking that allows you to play with the gigantic hand-sized kindergarten blocks when the real stories that are the smaller, very intricate Lego pieces are as much closer to the truth. I think the truth is lies like beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. Um, so I guess, and this is what the crippling part about being a centrist is I think it's all true. Really. I just don't like framing it in the, in the big block terms. Cause I think that can be very deceiving. I think that's also how you propagate tribalism and racism. If you're just going to go, Europe was doing this. It's like, well, Europe's a lot of fucking countries and languages and cultures. And if you're going to say Europe was doing it, yes, in some sense they were doing all doing it, but who was doing it? The ruling class? Was it everybody? Was the ruling class using these people? Do I want to apologize for all those evils? I mean, it's like, what were the pharaohs? Did the pharaohs build the pyramids? No, there's a bunch of slaves and other people who are building the pyramids or workers or however you want to categorize them. It wasn't just those people. And I think the narrative that I would want to tell about America is you can go ahead and input all of Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. I said her name slow that time, so I wouldn't fuck it up. You can input all of her inputs into our history. I think they should be there. I think they should be understood. I wish they would have had a little more in-depth analysis and scholarship and nuance to them instead of glossing them over like she did in this book. But at least I'm more aware of them now and I could go through this book again, pick out which one I wanted to go and look into and then dive down that rabbit hole. But I think the goal should be to crank up the heat and notice how much we've actually changed. I mean, that's one thing that she certainly didn't uh, spend much time expounding upon is how far we've come in that melting pot. Uh, granted, I'm not saying we're done cooking here. We're still simmering. And I think I almost feel like we should be turning up the heat and not turning it down. And I, cause I feel like when you turn it down, you cease to melt and you become more cloistered and atomized into whatever your group identity is, which is stupid. 
Um, and then the only thing that break breaks those group group identities is larger group identities like a religion per se or a language per se or a sport perhaps or you know other cultural markers that can that help you cross the line but if you're not working with people if you're geographically divided if you're antagonistic and bigoted against other people which when you once again which when you look back at history in a very leg or non-lego like or more kindergarten block way of thinking about it it's easy to hate another piece person who looks different than you because, oh, I read that thing about you and uh, you people hurt my people. Now, <laughs> I know this is, sounds very um, <laughs> apologetic for Europeans, um, and that's not the case. I mean, and I don't even want to make the, the stupid argument. It's not a stupid argument. It's just, it's not relevant right now to go, well, everyone had slaves and everyone committed atrocities and genocides. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't, not going to, that's not going to heal anyone's wounds when they feel like their issue in life is directly affected to uh, 300 years of slavery and Jim Crow, right? I mean, that's not going to go very far when you say that. It's not going to you know, make them feel any better. It's not going to make them go, oh, I guess I'll just go home and try to figure my shit out then. It, no, because once they've been fed, fed the line that someone else who looks different, looks different than you is the source of your issues, um, then then that that's in their heads. They're not going to get rid of that because you told them that, Oh, oh bad stuff happened to other people too. That's not going to, you know, that's not going <laughs> to disabuse them of the notion that you're to blame. So, um, anywho, I think that's probably about does it. What else have I put in my notes here? Um, you know, and I, I guess I was going to talk about somehow that, that white supremacy never really helped white people either. But I think, I think that's sort of the point I made that it's the ruling class and the movers and shakers that they're the supremacists, whether they're white or not, doesn't really interest me at all. It's the people in power. It's the class war that needs to be fought. And the moment you insert white into that, uh, it becomes more of a culture war. And I think, I mean, that's, and, and it's like, a, it's not even a capitalist communist thing in my mind either. It's power. It's simply about power. And I know that's a leftist thing, but at the same time, I think you can gain power in, in somehow in virtuous ways, I guess. I mean, I don't know how, how you do that just through pure influence, I guess. I mean, uh, Dr. King had power, but he gained that through his narrative, through his, his story, through his narration, through his oratory. That's the word I was looking for. His oratory, his speeches, um, people believed in him. That's influence as a way to gain power. But I'm not, no one wants to, you know, throw down, well, I guess they do, the, the people in actual power want to throw down revolutionaries, but that's because revolutionaries actually chower, chower, good Lord, maybe it's time for me to stop, revolutionaries actually chower, oh my God, challenge the power base, so, um, chower, I'm gonna have to look that up, maybe that's a word, <laughs> So yeah, there, that's why, you know, revolutionaries get killed is because they're challenging power. And, but that's where the challenge needs to be had. And it's and not by one or two revolutionary leaders, but by everybody, by understanding that that's where you focus at. You don't focus on your neighbor. You don't focus on your countrymen. You focus on those in power and, and whether it be organizations or individuals, you look at them and you start demanding some accountability. And then if the only way to do that is through... Uh, our elected representatives, got, if you have someone in whatever country you're listening in, then that's how you got to do it. Uh, you challenge power that way. Um, I guess I'll leave it at that naive level, but that's where we are here at the Centrist Podcast, as we are a bit naive and hopeful. 
And yeah, I'll leave you with the hope and I'll leave you with the love. And I'm hoping that everyone is safe in Ukraine. And I'm hoping that um, whatever you're doing, you're chasing your dreams uh, and then forgiving yourself when you, if or you can't achieve them today. But there's always tomorrow to work on them. And uh, go give someone a nice long hug and just keep some love in your heart and forgiveness and faith to whatever it is that you pray to out there. And I don't know, just uh, keep smiling. Love you guys. I'll see you later. Thank <laughs> you.